Welcome to Broken Potholes with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. In the studio with us today, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. And on the line, fantastic guest today, Eric Kaufman. Eric is a professor of politics at Birkbeck, the University of London, and author of, wow, this is a dangerous topic in academia, uh, White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, which argues that the current upsurge of white right-wing populism in the West stems from the existential plight of white majorities in an age of large-scale north-south migration. Uh, and, boy, you have waded into some <laughs> shark-infested waters, Eric. He wanted to lessen his Christmas card list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We we both have really enjoyed reading some of your work recently and, and learning about what you're doing. But tell us a little bit about uh, about this premise. And specifically, uh, you you set out the four main white responses to ethnic change, fight, flee, repress and join. And so I want to talk about that and what what those mean. Well, yeah, so White Shift really is is about, I mean, it really came about um, as people were trying to explain the sort of upsurge in, in right-wing national populism starting in 2014 in Europe when a series of parties, the Front National in France, UKIP in Britain, Danish um, People's Party got around 30% of the vote in the European elections. And then from there, we then saw... Um, you know, the Trump being elected uh, as head of the, or, or in the primary of the Republican Party, you, you had Brexit uh, and then Trump's election and then rolling on and on with Salvini in Italy. And, and so really behind this is an explanation, which I think is largely to do with identity and culture. And that is the demographic shifts in Western countries um, are leading a certain part of the population, which is largely members of the ethnic majority, white majorities who are who prefer stability or and order, who see uh, change as loss, uh, and that is the key constituency really for a lot of these movements. And that's kind of if you like the white shift 1.0, explaining why this is resurged and why I think it's going to come back. By the way, post COVID, COVID kind of puts a damper on this temporarily. Once it goes away, you can already see in the opinion survey data, the immigration issue, which is the absolutely central issue for national populism, has returned. It is now the leading concern amongst UK conservative voters. It's, it's a top concern, a leading concern amongst Republican voters in the US. And it's going to be rising across Europe, I would say, as well. Uh, so the conditions are returning to where they were just prior to the populist moment in Brexit and so on. The second bit really is, is about, okay, so looking at those four responses, I mean, one of which is the fight response, which is populism and, uh, and electoral resistance to large high levels of immigration. The second is a, a kind of flight response, which is more to do with social and residential, uh, I won't say segregation, but sort of avoiding uh, areas that are highly diverse. And this does seem to be a trend we see in in the data I've seen in Canada and Britain and the US, we see it in Sweden, we've seen it in a number of places. So that's a second response. And these are not mutually exclusive. A third response is um, one where you can repress this concern through political correctness and through norms which police the boundaries of what can be discussed, such as levels of immigration. That was a, a, a taboo in a place like Sweden prior to 2014. When the rise of the Sweden Democrats changed that, it was a taboo in the U.S. arguably before Trump. I mean, yes, you could talk about the border, but you really to make it central to your political campaign, Trump was the only one out of 17 that was willing to go there. And, and, and we've seen th similar things in some other uh, societies as well. So repress is another um, option. And of course, sometimes repress is the right response, but it, at other times, it's the wrong response. And I think it was largely the wrong response to concerns over immigration. Um, and then finally, we have join, which is really about melting and the expansion in the definition of the meaning of white through intermarriage, uh, and, and which I think is important when we get onto the census question. You know, it's, it's interesting that you point out that it, that early European white nationalism was gar gar garnering about 30% of the vote pretty consistently. If you actually look at the primaries here in the U.S. with Donald Trump, 
he really won the presidency because it was such a big field by garnering 30, about 30 percent of the vote consistently uh, and, and getting the plurality that way in a lot of those early states. Well, it's an issue again. So we're in Arizona and immigration is the number one issue in Arizona right now. It's like 31 percent because we do have. We have a border crisis. I know the media doesn't want to call it that, but it, it's it's a problem. And um, look, immigration. I mean, America is America is based on immigration, right? That's yeah. that's the uniqueness and greatness of it. We have one thing in common. It's the only place in the world. You know, if you grew up in Italy, you're Italian. It's the old Ronald Reagan saying: If you grow up in France, you're French. But if you come to America, no matter where you came from in the world, you become American. We adopt you. But right now, the pitchers and people I know who have gone down there, they just say it's completely disarray. So in Arizona now, it's a number one issue above COVID. And we've had a bit of a spike in COVID out here. And no one's paying attention to it no, because, no of, one. because of that topic. And so what you have, it seems like um, you have people very concerned about it just because it is a humanitarian crisis. Um, I also think, and, and if you can talk about, you know, there's there's a smidge of racism in it too on on the right, absolutely. And when you, well, I think, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go no, ahead. no. Go ahead. Well, I'd like to know your view on it. But, is you know, is is this immigration something people should fear, or just say this is life? It's going to happen. This is what happens in an interconnected world now. Um, well, I don't think it is just what happens. I mean, it's it's down to political will. This is worldwide. If you want to control it, you can control it. It's a, you know, Singapore is a small country, very wealthy, could have lots of immigration, decides not to. Now, so I don't think it is automatic, but obviously it's harder to control 3,000 mile land border. But still, I do think it is a matter of political will. Uh, and But I, I think, you know, you mentioned the term racism there, and I think it's an important discussion, right? Because okay. Um, there's a very important distinction made in the psychological literature between attachment to your own and hatred of the other. And if you are fearing and hating the other because they're different, that is racism, right? Uh, on the other hand, if you simply want to protect what you have because it's your way of life, that is not racism. And these are separate things which aren't correlated. So in the American National Election Study, you can see that if a white person feels really warm towards white people, they don't feel really cool towards black people. In fact, they feel slightly warmer towards black and Hispanic people than a white person who feels really cool towards white people. So it's not a, there isn't this zero sum relationship. It is, however, the case that yes, large scale immigration is more likely to change the ethnic balance quicker and it is not going to advantage the white population, at least not in the short term. And so it is only normal or natural that some people are going to, you know, that more white people are likely to want to slow that down. Now, of course, there are also security issues and there's also issues around COVID and whatever, but I think it's not illegitimate to want to control the rate of immigration. Now, that was the big issue in Britain. Uh, if you looked at the lead up to the Brexit vote, uh, you can see a correlation between the uh, immigration level and people's concern over immigration, and then that correlated with the rise in support for UKIP. Same thing in Europe. Um, so yeah, I think that is a legitimate issue for people to discuss, but it's very difficult for people to discuss it. Uh, Professor Kaufman, you wrote a great piece entitled What Liberals Get Wrong About Race. Um, it, was, it was brilliant, and you, you brought up some points. For example, white liberals feel thousands of unarmed black men are killed annually. Um, versus the reality is that's not true, and thousands get killed in, dry, in automobile accidents. Do you feel that this is just a narrative, um, we'll call them corporate media, just want to push to push an agenda? Why, why, why is there such a misunderstanding about that, and why is that perception sticking in the mind, especially on center-left Americans? Well, I think it's very much an ideology. Uh, the the academic intellectual left has very much moved in the direction of cultural and identity issues rather than class issues. Um, and there was really a conscious upsurge, which you could see on university campuses after 2015 um, with what's, what Matt Iglesias calls the Great Awakening. You could see it in the coverage in the newspapers like the New York Times and Washington Post, where you see a huge increase in use of terms like white supremacy, racism. That's tracked, by the way, by in the work of people like Zach Goldberg and, and David Rosado. You can see it very clearly. So you had this increased attention paid 
fueled to some degree by Trump, Trump's election. And then that pushes the narrative up uh, people's list of concerns. And so when you then also throw in citizen journalism uh, and circulation of images uh, on social media of uh, white police and black uh, suspects being killed, then that, of course, ignites the narrative. If it was a, a black police officer killing a black suspect, or if it was a white officer and a white suspect, as in the case of Tony Timpa, which is very like, similar to the George Floyd case, there was simply no coverage. And, and I think Goldberg has shown there's about nine times more coverage of every a black suspect, get, unarmed suspect being killed compared to white unarmed suspects. So yeah, it's about whether it fits this narrative, but it's very ideological and I don't think it's connected to events on the ground. It seems like it's also a bit clickbait. Right. There was a great movie years ago. Shark Attack. Yeah, it's a great movie. Right. There's a great movie years ago, um, which dates me, but it's Burt Reynolds and um, the guy who used to play Superman, Keanu Reeves, who passed away. And Burt Reynolds is a producer of this news station, and he just kept saying, we need fires. People watch fires on the local news, so we need to find more fires. <laughs> and and I feel like that's what this is, right? And it doesn't demean their deaths at all, but it does seem like this has become a clickbait for especially cable news outlets. Yeah, I think clickbait is a general trend for news with the, the end of classified advertising. Uh, that's absolutely right. And of course, there's different types of clickbait on the right and, and compared to the left, and they both do it. So I think that's general. But uh, I guess if you're going to talk about clickbait on the left, it tends to be a, you know, this is one of the flashpoints, the issue of race, uh, to a lesser extent, issues around gender and Me Too and so on. But I think primarily um, the narrative of race and racism, if you just look again at, at mentions of those terms in the major progressive newspapers, uh, we see a big spike that's empirically verified fact. And uh, I think it reflects, yeah, this cultural mood that just swept out after 2014, 15, um, amplified to some degree by social media and also by that new type of journalism you mentioned. Professor, we, we have to go to break here in a couple of moments, but when we come back, I, I wanted to, to hit on a point you made about the shift from class warfare to race warfare, because I, I really feel like that shift has been partly driven by the failure of the class warfare uh, ideology. Broken Potholes will be coming right back in just a moment. Thank you very much. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. On the line with us, Professor Eric Kaufman of the uh, professor of politics at Birkbeck, University of London, and author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, professor, right before we went to break, I was bringing up a point that, that touched on something you said, that the left has really moved from class warfare to race warfare. And I always feel like there are sort of two uh, interests, if you will, competing in any society. One is is the general popular interest, but one is the specific political interest of the parties and, and of various leaders within that society. And, and what I really have seen here in the last few years is that they tried very hard for decades to make a class-based argument. But frankly, as much as you try, it's very hard because here in America, throughout Western Europe and, and really all the developed countries of the world, Upward mobility is, is a real thing. It's hard to argue that there are real class barriers. And then they moved on to race. And, and I feel like that was, as much as anything, a political shift that is just taking advantage of some underlying, as you pointed out, there is some underlying racism. There are some underlying issues that are there that have made that shift possible. Well, yeah, I think, but intellectually, if you trace this, the failure of apparent failure of communism, it was already becoming apparent in the 60s, really, that, uh, you know, this was not necessarily going to be the, the sunlit uplands of the future. And so 
intellectuals like Herbert Marcuse of the Frankfurt School were, were starting to move towards uh, race and other categories as bringing forth some kind of radical transformation. And so that starts kind of in those upper reaches. And then it slowly kind of colonizes, you know, movements. And it's not just race, it's also identity movements around gender and sexuality. Those sorts of identity politics issues then start to crowd out. It's not that they're no longer concerned with the poor, they, they still are, but really the energy is really in these new social movement ideologies. Um, and so, yeah, that then percolates down and then eventually reaches into the political parties. And now we're, we're at a point where the class composition of, for example, in Britain, here in Britain, the Conservative Party, which was always the middle and upper class party, uh, is, is more working class or as working class as the Labour Party, which was the Labour Party, right? Because a lot of disaffected, uh, culturally conservative white working class people have shifted from Labour to the Conservatives. Um, and similarly, in the US, the Republican Party is more working class because, again, that sort of university educated ideological identity left is just less appealing to your white working class voter. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is an intellectual trend which has become part of uh, the orthodoxy within left-wing parties in the West. We're with Eric Kaufman. He's the professor of politics at Birkbeck, University of London. So how do you decide to become an academic in particular? How did you decide to get in this specific field of thought and research? And how has it been received by your peers? I mean, you know, I, you know, if, if you read studies, um, University campuses are not known for being this great tolerant place to be an employee, and um, which is which is the way it shouldn't be, but it is. How? What made you get into it? What 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 inspired your interest, and how have your peers reacted to this? Well, there's a lot of great questions there, Chuck. I'm not sure if I can <laughs> get through them all, but we have um, a segment. You know, the in, yeah, the interest in in a nation is. I mean, I grew up. I'm Canadian. I grew up a lot abroad in in Japan, for example. So I was always aware of being somewhat different, and and that maybe started the interest. Um, and then I've kind of lived in Vancouver, where I'm from. Also has quite a bit of immigration and ethnic shift. So let me ask so you this. When, when was the last yeah. time you lived in Canada? You're in London now. When's the last time you lived in Canada? Uh, it's, I've been in London for over 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, because Vancouver so, is one yeah. of God's great, beautiful places in the world. Oh, well, thank you. And I wish I'd been to Arizona. My parents have, have been in golf there, which it's, I hear it's a, a great place. <laughs> it is. It's it gorgeous. Is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Anyway, sorry about that. Go ahead. Continue. Full of Canadians in the winter, by the way. But okay. So, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you're the but polite yeah, ones it, on the road. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But yeah, then in terms of the book, I mean, I was very pleasantly surprised, actually, because I was going into what I thought was, you know, reasonably contentious territory, like saying that, you know, white identification is not the worst thing in the world, as long as it's done in a certain way. And so, uh, um, but, but yeah, I would say generally the, the center and the center right have been, you know, have been well reviewed in publications like the, in Britain here, the Financial Times, which is a sort of somewhat left of center liberal. Uh, and in, in the US, I was on Ezra Klein and he was uh, very courteous and said nice things. So yeah, I think I, I have to say I was generally pretty pleasantly surprised. There have been some nasty attack pieces, but those are, are, are very few. Where I'm getting more problem is, is you know, from the radical left within uh, either my institution or networked to other kinds of institutions. So you have a very small group of agitators who will try and smear you online. And I, I've had a number of these attempts. Uh, and of course, they just cause a big storm and they don't go anywhere. But, you know, they're quite unpleasant. But I wouldn't say there's been I wouldn't, wouldn't say there's been a sustained excommunication uh, because of this book. No, it's actually... I've been very pleased, actually. How, how have your students? How have your students received it? Well, to the extent they they are aware of it. I mean, a lot of the students at our institution are, are are mature students who attend in the evening, and so they're a bit different from your ordinary student. Okay. Um, and they're generally fairly open minded. Um, so I don't. I haven't had any any issues really there. Uh, so yeah, I think it's generally a very noisy and very online networked radical group that tends to do the canceling. They've tried their best, but at least here in Britain, we've got a pretty good uh, media and a pretty good, uh, now the government is protecting academic freedom with a new bill, which 
um, which is coming into force next year. And that, that will essentially make it very, very difficult for universities to discipline people for speech. We're more likely to eliminate cancer than we are trolls in the next 10 years. <laughs> um, what is one question, as you've done this book, that you've been asked or someone's pushed back against that made you relook at your research? Has there been a question that someone's asked you that gave you pause and made you relook at your conclusions? Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't think my essential view has changed a whole lot. That I, I think that this is fundamentally, you know, national populism is culturally driven. I haven't seen any real data and evidence to contest that substantially. Um, of course, part of my book was also about the rise of the cultural left and the way in which it shuts down debate, which allows for, I mean, in a way, populists emerge because mainstream parties are too, right. too afraid to touch these issues. Um, again, I haven't really seen, no, I, it sounds a bit arrogant, but I haven't really seen a very powerful argument to the contrary on these issues. I, I mean, there's some papers that show small effects of deindustrialization on populist support. Uh, so there may be a small input from economic forces, but I still think that's pretty minor compared to the uh, identity shifts and, and ethnic transformations that are driving it. Facts stink sometimes, don't they? Yeah, well, and, and I think the professor made a very good point about the rise of Trump and some of these, these other populist right. politicians uh, coming from that reprobation. Because you know, I, I experience this in, in my work all the time. I get called a racist all the bloody time. And if you're always a racist then you're never a racist you're, I mean, you're, you're a jewish racist too yeah exactly i yeah I, I, i'm I, one I, of those too i think yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Sign, sign me up for the gestapo i'll kill myself um now so th this is a fantastic topic professor thank you so much for being on we're going to bring you back here in just a moment broken potholes is coming back It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from godaddy.com today. Welcome to Broken Potholes. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, with my co-host, Sam Stone. You can find us at brokenpotholes.vote. Today with us, we have Eric Kaufman. He's a professor of politics at the University of London, and he wrote this great piece entitled, Is This the End of White America? And this was based on the recent U.S. Census, which frankly should just be redone because it was an atrocious mess due to COVID, but no one's going to do that. So anyway, uh, Professor, talk to us a little bit about that piece um, what people may not be reading between the lines, uh, what they should be aware of. And let's talk a little bit about that in this six-minute segment. Yeah, well, of course, you had a number of um, uh, news headlines come out about the shrinking, the historic, you know, the first time in, in American history that the white population has shrunk in absolute terms as a result of the 2020 census results. Um, and a lot of uh, people like Michael Moore on the left sort of piled in on this, saying this was the greatest day ever and, and so on. Um, and really, my point was really, first of all, that this was completely to misread uh, the evidence, number one, because the census question had been changed uh, to offer a write-in box underneath, which sort of led to, a, and it's well known in social research that if you mess around with questions, you can often get quite sharply different answers. So what happened was, you got a huge increase in the number of people who said they were white and something else as a result of these, these write-in boxes. And that, that was particularly amongst uh, Latinos, but also amongst some non-Hispanic whites as well. Um, I, I think that to read that as a, to read the drop in white alone numbers as some kind of drop in social whites, you know, the number of people who would be identified as socially white, I think is a big mistake. So I, I thought it was really a, a, the media hyping up a story which wasn't really there. But um, and, and sort of what I was interested in is why that took place and why it is that on the one hand, you have on the left a great desire to see this happen. It's kind of a great hope. They think this will be they, this will lead to a sort of permanent 
uh, Democrat or, or uh, liberal majority. Um, and then on the right, you have a great fear, of course, of this. Uh, and I think both narratives are powerful, whereas the narrative that says, well, actually, there isn't as much change as you think. There's a lot of assimilation occurring right. as the boundaries of whiteness blur a little bit. I mean, that's not represented very well. Well, you, you quoted in your article that 10 percent of white liberal Democrats feel cold towards white people. That's statistics. And so I'm wondering, do you think of things like now, like 23andMe, which allow you to go look at your ancestry? Is that allowing people to say, well, I'm really X. I'm not white. <laughs> I mean, is that allowing that now, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a bit of an Elizabeth Warren effect yeah. I mean, happening, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we are the COO of my company, she's Peruvian and she, she uh, her partner is a white male and they're having a baby and you know, is the baby white or Peruvian, you know? Um and, and you know, a, a, a good friend of ours is his f- former spouse is of Mexican ancestry and he's often said, "Are my children Mexican, Hispanic, or are they white? You know, and I don't think right. any of them consider themselves Hispanic. Um, I think they consider us white. So I think it's a real, it's a real interesting. I like how you said that we should ask the question, what do people view you as? That's probably more of an accurate way of reflecting what people think they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, myself, I'm a quarter Latino, quarter Chinese. So I sort of have a sense of this as well. <laughs> but, 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 but yeah. So, so it's sort of, yeah, but they've done surveys that show, you know, that, um, I mean, to some degree, this is a, a political decision. If you have some somebody who's, say, part Hispanic and part uh, sort of white European, if they're a Republican, they're more likely to identify as white. And if they're a, a Democrat, they're more likely to identify as Latino. Um, and so that's this, this, that's one of the things that's that's going on. But in addition, studies have shown, I think, that there is, you know, amongst third generation Americans with some Mexican ancestry, I think 60 percent identify as white on, on certain surveys. So there is this process of melting that's going on and, and somewhat of a blurring or, or beiging of the boundaries of whiteness. But that's something that gets lost in this battle about whether whites are increasing or decreasing. You know, something else you, you pointed to in uh, in that in your piece about the census is the changing demographics of Hispanics where their birth rate is dropping, uh, really starting to match white birth rates across the world. And, you know, I, I really think a lot of these trends that people say, you know, dem- demographics are destiny – they're forgetting that a lot of these populations are going to change behaviors just like that as they reach higher and higher levels of prosperity. Well, yeah, I, I mean, that that uh, convergence of birth rates is very much happening and will. I'm sh- You just have to look at what's happening to birth rates in Latin America, where they've been falling pretty steadily down towards at the replacement level or, or below. So I don't think that's in doubt. And the, But the interesting thing in terms of politics is, you know, we everyone talks about you know, it is true that uh, Hispanic Americans are more likely to be Democrats than than non-Hispanic white Americans. But if you're looking at, say, uh, ethnic change in the population shifting every census, you've also got to look at what proportion of Latinos are voting Republican. And if that's moving at a faster rate towards from Democrat to Republican than the demography, then actually you're never going to get to this inbuilt democratic majority. And that's often the destiny is not written. Professor, thank you so much for being on the program today. Broken Potholes will be coming right back. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote domain from GoDaddy. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. In the studio with us today, Kylie Kipper. Uh, We want to thank our previous guest, Professor Eric Kaufman of the University of London. And now on the line with us, a politician in Arizona. He probably doesn't like me calling him a politician (laughs) because, frankly, he's better than that. But um, he's a guy who is at the convergence of of some very big things going on here in Arizona, Jeff Weninger. He is a member of the House of Representatives, uh, previously served on the Chandler City Council, including as vice mayor. Uh, But 
also one of the key sponsors of the sports betting bill here in Arizona. And I don't know if you're like me and, and you're a sports nut, you're probably getting bombarded uh, with everybody's draft, uh, everybody's betting sites and draft sites and draft kings and all these guys coming out, out on your uh, Facebook and social media feeds. It's going to be a pretty big shift in Arizona uh, when that is fully in effect. Uh, and Jeff, Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. First, we, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, I, how you, you got to doing this, how you got into politics and signed yourself up for this much punishment and torture. Yeah, you bet. It, it actually kind of goes along with the gaming that we're talking about. Uh, real quick story. Yeah, I moved here from Wichita, Kansas with a friend to open up restaurants. And we have opened up a few. That was uh, 1993, and we still have our two original restaurants here. So, 25 which, which are those restaurants? Years. Which restaurants are they? Uh, Dilly's Deli and Florodino's Pizza and Pasta. So, what do you like doing uh, better, deli or pizza? I mean, I, I I love them both. I'm in front of my deli now, getting ready to work after this, and uh, our pizza and pasta place is booming uh, all the time, but especially at night. I actually did not know you were you were one of the founders owners of that. That is a fantastic deli for those who haven't been there. Really, <laughs> thank you. Really thank worth you. the visit. This is coming from a um, fat guy, so you, you can take this gospel. <laughs> so one night uh, during the poker craze, I was having a, a big poker game at my house, and I've always been interested in politics, been a precinct committeeman. And I asked a buddy of mine. There's about twenty of us. I said, "Who's running for Chandler City Council?" Because I wasn't happy with some of the the fiscal things going on and uh we talked about it and thought i could possibly win and the, the election was only four months away and we just poured our heart and soul into it and and got in there and, and won uh, i was lucky enough to win and served there for eight years and then went on to the legislature uh where i've kind of stuck to the same kind of bills a lot of bills that deal with business uh regulatory freedom with business um and just making it easier for business people uh, and financial uh, services and different things, uh, innovative products to thrive here in Arizona. And that that's something that you, the legislature and the governor, frankly, deserve a great deal of credit for from these last few years, because the business environment now in Arizona has been pretty significantly transformed from what it was a decade ago in terms of the regulatory environment licensing a whole number of issues we are in a much stronger place now than we were before you got in there well thank you and and i agree and it's it's been good it, it, it's some of those things you don't see but once you open up those opportunities you don't have the heavy hand of government constantly uh you know writing you a, a lot more innovative and great things happen and you see that with the growth of businesses here the ability of people to open those up that that's an underrated feature in Arizona's economy, I think. And it's, I think it's been really, really important. Uh, but, Jeff, before we I go on talking about this stuff all day, because you and I are both nerds on, on all deregulation, taxing, all these kinds of things. But I uh, want to talk a little bit about also you're stepping up to run for another office. So tell yeah, us about that. I, I declared for a state treasurer uh, um, two days ago. And... Uh, I had been thinking about it for a while. I had been thinking about it while we were in session. And Regina Cobb is a very good friend of mine. We came in uh, to the legislature together. We shared an office together. And she was thinking about it, too. And we determined we would not run against each other. She was a much further along in her decision. I didn't think it was fair for me to hold it up. So I deferred to her, and she would have been great. Then about a week ago, she called me and told me that she had this amazing opportunity uh, to head up an association here in the state. And she was kind of waiting for, uh, you know, different things to come through with it. And so we kind of did a joint press releases and announcement that she was, uh, you know, stepping out of the race for this opportunity and uh, endorsing me, and I was, I was stepping in. So as treasurer, you basically are responsible for $23 billion in assets, and you handle about $40 billion of the state budget as the cash management guru. What do you want to accomplish? Why do you want to run for treasurer, first of all? And what are some things you want to accomplish as treasurer? Or is it more of, it's running great now, I want to continue that legacy and maybe 
do this alteration or that, but want to keep it a, a pretty steady course. What What is your reasoning for running for treasurer? Well, I, I do think you need a steady hand in there. And it, it, things are, are going well. Um, things have been going well with Republicans in there for the last, you know, Governor Deuce was there before. You need a steady hand. You, you don't want a, uh, you know, a kind of a loose cannon who's trying to come up with, you know, all these really radical ideas. Um, I mean, realistically, I I Jeff, I'm sorry to cut you off, but, but it's yeah. a position that you really want someone who it's not about their personal ambition and not about their political ambition, but simply about managing the state's finances and creating, you know, helping us have more money to do the things that we need to do without taking that, it from a, taxpayers. That's, that's a great way to put it. I mean, you want somebody who's not, you know, just looking at it as a stepping stone. You need someone who's going to be happy just to do the job. I, I think I do some good things down there, but I think, you know, I'm not the guy who's fishing for praise and trying to take all the praise. Uh, I, I just try, I think it's being a business person is that you, you want the results and you let the results speak for themselves. I'm very competitive and I'll work very, very hard at anything I do. But, uh, you know, the accolades and, and this and that doesn't mean a lot to me. And it's just, it's just too important. We just need that office to run well. I have a lot of experience. You know, I have over the last 25 years had, you know, over 100 employees at any given time uh, manage the budgets in Chandler, you know, development agreements with Intel. And, uh, and now at the state level, uh, you know, chairing commerce, uh, vice chair of banking, um, when I first came in, and a lot of these are the same issues, and things are, are are going well, and we need a steady hand. But there are things, you know, that I'm sure we'll get in there, and I can use my experience in finding innovative ways to solve problems, and you know, embracing technology and things to further the office. One sure. of the big bills I did run was the fintech sandbox a couple years ago. Attorney General asked me to run this, and it. It basically creates a sandbox that innovative financial technology companies can deploy in here in the state without these, uh, you know, burdensome financial regulations over them. They still have to behave. They can't do anything against the law, but it allows you to incubate new technologies, new kinds of businesses that attract businesses here. And I think there can be a, a, a real linkage in, in ideas and stuff still with the legislature, my relationships there. Um, in trying to keep attracting these companies, and, and, and we could be a part of that. You know, Chuck, you and I have talked about this a lot, but as you, you listen to, to what Jeff's saying, it, it strikes me, again, that in local government, having people who have had to make payroll, who have had to have had their family's livelihood at stake on their own enterprise makes a huge difference in, in just starting with the mindset that you approach this with. Oh, Absolutely. How did you, since you're an owner of two restaurants, how did COVID affect your business, and what did you learn from it being a business owner, versus and, and then taking that knowledge into the legislature? Yeah, it definitely affected our businesses. I mean, you learn, and and this is where small business sometimes has an advantage. A lot of times, you don't have an advantage over change, but you have to adapt quickly. And we pivoted very quickly, especially at Floridino's. I mean, we do anywhere from you know, uh, any given time of year, 700 to 1,000 people a day through that restaurant. And now all of a sudden we're completely shut down. So we pivoted to curbside takeaway, and it's been so popular that we still do curbside takeaway every day. It's not going away ever. And we have, you know, essentially 20 spots. And there's times of the day where every one of them is full, somebody picking up and, you know, he'll have your food in three minutes from us. And so you have to adapt quickly um, and Different people did different things. It was a black swan event. You didn't know everything. We at that time said, one, most of our employees have been with us for 10, 15, 20 years. We want to take care of them. We didn't lay off a single person. That says a lot about about your partner and you. Yeah. Right. Now, we did it for the right reason, but I will tell you, it helped us in the long run. I have friends who they laid off everyone. They didn't want to come back to work. They had to hire and retrain all new people, and that was if they could get people to apply. So it was, we did it for the right reasons, but it was a blessing in the end. And how did you take that knowledge? How did that knowledge affect how you handled the legis- legislature with COVID, you know, 
programs or updates or restrictions and things of that nature? What? How did that knowledge affect your voting record? I, it, it definitely showed me that one business owners, yeah, they need to have uh, autonomy, but also just how you know knee jerk reactions from DC or wherever can just drastically affect your business. And you know these things affect all the people who actually own a real business with employees. Um, and there are a few of us at the legislature. I mean, minimum wage, uh, health insurance, everything under the sun, uh, these decisions affect us. And you just learn uh, quickly either to adapt or try to affect change by, you know, lobbying. D.C. I, I lobby my own senators uh, on policies I hear about that's coming from D.C. But um, we went down, I went down to Yuma the other day with Tim Dunn, who's a great businessman down there. And and sometimes what you've learned, I didn't. It's like my fifth trip down there, but I, my first trip, I didn't know anything about farming down there and what that whole community really does. And so, I try to get legislators to actually get out, go to a business, you know, talk to these business owners, and go to the different parts of the state, so you can really see what they're going through. Um, and because you can talk about it all the time, but it, until you see it up front, it, it, it's not the same thing up, up front, personal. Yeah, that, those field trips, those personal interactions, seeing it are just crucial in any decision-making process. And I feel like we've almost become a society of social media and spreadsheets, and we've missed that human connection to see what's really going on as we try to investigate and solve problems. You know, I always yeah. – he's not the most popular name in the Republican Party right now, but I actually always go back to uh, John McCain when he made his first really serious presidential run and – did it as kind of a grassroots candidate and had to just spend all that time going around talking to people, meeting with business owners. That changed him very significantly. Then I think he, he sort of migrated back to his original positions, but that changed him very significantly. And, and Jeff, I think you're absolutely right that that's something that politicians have to do uh, because it's so hard for anyone to understand life other than their own. Yeah, 100%. You you. You know what you know, and if you don't, if you, you can't empathize and see it through someone else's eyes, then you can't make the best decision. No, absolutely not. We're, we're going to take a quick break here soon, but quickly, I want to ask you, as we got about a minute left here for the next segment, tell us a little bit about your background, married, kids. Tell us a little bit, little bit more about you for our audience yeah. and, where they, and where they can find more about you. Yeah, married over 22 years. Uh, I have three kids, uh, a 30-year-old son, a 21-year-old son, uh, who just had his first legal cocktail, at least, that I know of uh, <laughs> the other day, and uh, a 14-year-old daughter who started high school this year. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. Great. I'm I'm very blessed, and uh, at, uh, you know, I, I, I see... Uh, I see some nights where I'm going to be coming home and not have anything to do because she's going to be out of the house uh, pretty soon. But uh, I cannot complain at all. How do, how do they like your politicking? Oh, they like – oh, believe me, it's just old hat to them. If you get a big head at all, which I don't, uh, I get brought back to reality very quickly when I get home. Yeah, I, I hear from a lot of my friends that 14-year-old daughters are really good at bringing you down to earth in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. They're very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable, have very, very loud opinions on things. <laughs> and, and my website is jeffwenninger.com, W-E-N-I-N-G-E-R, and uh, you can contact me through there and uh, uh, email. I'll give you a call if you want to talk about any issues. Fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so much. You're going to join us for the next segment, which, folks, you can only get online via our podcast, Apple, Spotify, Substack, all the places you find podcasts. Broken Potholes is there coming back on the radio next week. It's the new year and time for a new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from godaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. This is our special podcast-only segment. Uh, I am your host, Sam Stone. With me in the studio, my co-host, Chuck Warren, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. We don't have a sunshine moment for today. She'll be bringing that back next week. But on the line with us still, Jeff Weninger. 
uh, Arizona state representative running for treasurer and also one of the leading authors behind something we want to talk about now, uh, the bill to allow sports gaming here in Arizona. Um, so, Jeff, can you give us a little bit background on that, how that came about uh, in, in what your involvement was and what it means for Arizona going forward? Yeah, definitely. So when I first came in the legislature in 2015, it was something I was talking to the governor's office about back then, just that we should have sports betting here, especially fantasy sports. It was mm-hmm. interesting when this bill passed. I had a few people contact me through Twitter and showed me tweets of mine to them in 2016 uh, when it was said that all these states were doing this daily fantasy sport and we couldn't. It's when draft came to them just like blew up. And I said, well, it's ridiculous, but, you know, and so I said, well, thanks. I'm sorry it took me so long, but uh, we got it done this year. So the governor's office approached me before session and said, look, we're finally ready. We're very close with the compact and we we want the sports betting bill. And uh, so we started uh, working on it. Um, It's a very long and complicated bill, but there's a lot in there. And there's even some Easter eggs in there, some things kind of. That, that don't jump out at you that's in there. But it basically does a couple things. It legalizes uh, the daily fantasy sports in Arizona. Anyone can get a license for that. you got to go through the process, but it, it's open for everyone to get a license on that. So instead of your fantasy leagues that you do, uh, I just did one with my daughter the other day, and then, but it's basically every week you can do an entirely new team. And so that's that one. And then it also legalizes sports betting in Arizona. There's uh, 10 licenses that the that uh, basically the major sports teams uh, uh, have access to. I think eight of them got issued, which means there's still two available. And then all the tribal nations get you know a sports book, and then there's 10 online uh, sports books for them as well. And any of the the 10 partners outside of the tribal nations can do the online ones as well. And then they partner with people like DraftKings or Barstool Sports or MGM and any of those groups, and they kind of run the back end for that. And it all launches, uh, you know, there is a lawsuit out there. Uh, we're hoping and confident that that's just going to be swatted down. But uh, it goes live on September 9th, and that was purposeful. Uh, one, I put an emergency clause in it, so no matter how late we went, you know, they could start setting up the rules and stuff with this. And then, two, our ultimate goal was always by the opening day and NFL season, and that is on Thursday, September 9th, and, and it looks like we're going to hit that date. Well, that's wonderful. So wh- what are the financial benefits for the state of Arizona do you see conservatively, short-term and long-term? So conservatively, so JLBC are – uh, you know, our budget arm, they put it very, very conservatively, I think, at about $35 million a year. I've always said I think it'll be approaching $100 million a year, but that doesn't include, and that's, you know, taxes through it, that they're uh, taxing these entities who are doing the betting and the signing up of the licenses. But you got to think, and you guys understand this, the, the downstream effect. I mean, do you think if everybody, a lot of people are going to be betting on sports now, that Sports bars are going to be busier during the day absolutely. on different days and everything. Yeah, absolutely, I've, you've seen the advertising. I mean, so the advertising alone of DraftKings and all these things has been—you can't turn around anywhere without seeing it. Well, I think we're going to get more conventions. I think people who are here for baseball in March who come here for the whole month, and then maybe one weekend or a week they go to Vegas for March Madness bet. I think a lot of those people aren't going to go. They're going to stay here. You're right. A lot of I, people who go up right. there uh, from here aren't going to go. Is there is there any money set aside? I've seen this in other states. Is there any money set aside for gambling addicts in there for you know whatever they need? I know to we know. have money yeah. from the state gambling compact. So what is, what is that program? What is that part of the program? Yeah, there's a problem uh, gambling aspect to it. It's, it's a continuation and extension of the existing one that is at the tribal nation. Okay. And so that will be going. There's, there's lots of help. There's self-exclusion lists. There's, and if somebody does get excluded for any reason, that all these betting partners have to have their uh, databases updated constantly. So if you get, uh, you're not allowed to bet at Gila River, you're not allowed to bet, you know, at uh, the Cardinal Stadium either. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about downstream consequences. I think $35 million is a really, really conservative number. Well, I know I used to own a pizza restaurant myself, Jeff, and I just know yeah. if you could have had that, those you know, those have been the Shangri-La days, right? That's, yeah. that's a big deal right. for business. It's a big deal for business. Yeah. I mean, also in there, you got to think, we, we also legalized Kino in this, and I insisted that the service organizations get it. So the American Legions and the uh, uh, BFWs will be able to have Kino in their places. Okay. Um, and I think that's going to be a big driver for, for them. And they do so much help in the community. I mean, why wouldn't we want them making more money that they give right back out to the So my, my parents actually started the family business because my mom won $500 at Kino in Reno <laughs> 45 awesome. years ago. So Kino is a great originator of startup capital. Awesome. That, that is awesome. Uh, you know, Jeff, as you, we were talking a little bit about you running for treasurer, and I think one of the things that the left always forgets is that it's the the pie that we have for all these services and everything they want to do is not static. That if you actually go out and cut regulation, if you create opportunity for small business, if you create opportunity for an entirely new class of business like this, you're going to have more money to spend for the things they want to spend. And so that's where I, I think people like you have a tremendous role in talking about in in really articulating to folks out there how important these type of opportunities are, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one example I use a lot is Intel did a $3 billion expansion during the recession, so like in 08, 09. And businesses, including mine in Chandler, uh, yeah, we were hit by the initial recession, but we were booming and recovered much more quickly because they had 5,500 construction workers who moved here to uh, build out that facility. And when you bring these jobs, TSMC that we uh, successfully uh, recruited here, I mean, when that is built out, it, it, they have so much land, you could be talking $40, $50 billion. Of talking about the, the world's stuff. largest semiconductor factory. That's going to be right. a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, because you were to all these sub-businesses and subcontractors and suppliers locate here that feed into that. And that means the restaurants in that area are busier and busier. I mean, you're right. It's it, it, Try and drive that home to people that we're not, it's not just one pie. Just because this person wins doesn't mean you lose, you know. Um, everybody jump on the, on the train and get it done. Jeff, thank you so much for being on today. Really appreciate you being here. Folks, if you're listening out there, make sure you like, share, Pass this segment around to your friends. Email the heck out of it. Broken potholes. Coming back next week. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.